0: turn in your bibles to 1st Thessalonians 2 verses 13 to 16. And we're going to continue with our study here in this book this morning talking about the gospel and suffering. Thank you. I'd like to read it for us as we begin. Chapter 2 verse 13. Paul continues his note of thanks and he says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Father, today as we come to your word, we once again ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in the hearts of those who listen and in my heart as you speak. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what Paul is saying here and then to be able to apply that to our life, because your word was given not just to give us information, but to change our heart and to change our life. And Father, may we take that to heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we prove that our faith is real? Well, the answer, in short, is that we show it by the way that we live. Henry Blackaby, in his book, Experiencing God, said that our actions prove what we really believe. For example, if we say we believe the Bible is the word of God, but rarely or never read it, do we really believe that it is important and that God has spoken to us? Or if we say we believe in prayer, but we rarely or seldom pray, do we really believe that prayer has power and that it changes things? And if we say we are a Christian, but our life doesn't change, Are we really a believer? Well, this is exactly the question that we find in the book of James. Chapter 2, verse 14, James asked the question, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? And the answer that he gave in 2.17 is this, that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. A genuine faith will show itself in the way that we live. And that was why Paul was so grateful for the believers in Thessalonica. Their faith was genuine, and he could see the evidence of that in three very significant ways that are found in this text. And as we walk through those things that he saw in their lives, I want us to ask the question, are these same qualities true of us? The first thing that Paul commended them for was their acceptance of the Word of God. Paul thanked God for their eager response to the Word of God. How did the gospel come to them? If you think about it, I mean, there was no New Testament written at this time, Paul had not written. All of his letters, there wasn't any collected set of works of the Gospels and all of that. And so the the way that they heard the word of God was through the preaching of men, through the preaching of Paul and Silas who came to them. And you think about it, they didn't know Paul and Silas. I mean, they had just met as they were on their missionary journey going from place to place. But when they heard this word preached, God did a work. And that's why Paul was even amazed at their supernatural response. That when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is also at work in you. That's pretty amazing. I mean, it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power and that confirmation in their heart that there was something different here. This was no ordinary word that they were hearing in the gospel. Paul will use two words to describe their response. The first word, that word receive when you receive the word of God, is a word that was used uh, as a technical term for passing on traditions or authoritative teaching or doctrine. It's like Paul was saying, this is the gospel, and he gave them the facts and told them about Jesus Christ and what he had done and what is it that a person needs to know in order to be saved. And so he's very clear on the gospel and what this means, and they received that. They heard it, they understood it, and they put themselves under the authority of that word and the apostles' teaching. But then the second word I really like. The second word, acceptance, is a word that was used for welcoming a guest into your home. You know, and I think about that. They welcomed this word of God with open arms. They embraced it. Like if you had a a good friend coming into your home and you welcome them and you invite them in to make themselves at home, that was their response to the word of God. They delighted in it. They found joy in it. That's pretty cool. What about you and me? What is our response to God's Word? Our response to God's Word will determine the place it has in our life, the value that we put upon it. You know, I've seen that with young believers. I've seen it with students that when they are hungry to learn, eager to hear, they grow. You know, they just have a heart that's like, I just wanna soak it all in, or I've seen kids that are just like a sponge, taking it all in, and you can see God at work in their life. If somebody's kinda cool or indifferent to the word of God, it's not surprising that they're not gonna grow very much, are they? And I think about keeping that same attitude all the way through our life, you know, many of you have read through the Bible several times. But isn't it amazing how fresh God's Word is just when you need it? You can read a passage you've read many times before and you go, you know, I don't think I saw that before. Or that's, that's exactly what I needed to hear today. I think in our church of Lesson Lil' Johnson... And I'll just use them as an example. You know, Les and Lil are up in years. They've been married now 70 years, which is just amazing, you know. And to be able to um, come and be together, they have such joy in their life. And I can't tell you how many times after a sermon or a message, they come by and they go, oh, you know, I just loved it. I love to hear God's Word preached. We just love to study God's word they're hungry in their 90s to hear the word of God and to apply it to their life and I want to be like them I want to have that same attitude to continue to grow all the way through my life the psalmist wrote oh how I love thy law it is my meditation all the day long David said your word is more precious than gold than much pure gold It's sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You see the value that David placed upon the word of God being more valuable to him than much pure gold. John Calvin wrote that we owe to scripture the same reverence we owe to God, for it is his word. God has spoken. He has communicated his truth to us so that we might know and understand the gospel and come into a relationship with him. You know, a lot of problems could be solved in many churches if they would just do that. If they would just accept what is written in the scripture as the word of God and place themselves under its authority, there'd be a lot less fighting in a lot of churches. Where churches and denominations have gotten into trouble is when they've said, well, that was then, this is now, God spoke to them, you know, in that way, but he speaks to us, and so they begin to change things. Or they make judgment calls on what they think is the word of God and what is not the word of God. And everything is up for grabs. The Bible wasn't written for us to choose what we like and what we don't like. The Bible was written to show us the way to life. You know, as a side note, it was interesting to read some of the comments that were made in regard to this text about preaching. And there are some circles where preaching has fallen out of favor, and they ask the question, is preaching necessary? Is it effective? Uh, Some would say that, you know, other forms of uh, communication are more effective. Some would say, you know, it's better in a classroom or a small group where you can get together and talk about it, and that that's more effective than preaching. Some would say that, well, you know, I appreciate other things like music, or I'd like a little more drama or the creative arts, you know, that's something that I connect with that helps me. And some would say that, you know, I have a different learning style, that this lecture format isn't really my preferred style. So why preaching? And why did God place importance on the Word of God being taught and spoken? Well, this passage sheds some light on that. That something supernatural and unique takes place when the gospel is preached. The Holy Spirit is at work in your heart as you listen, and he's in, at work in my heart as I speak. And there's a communication that goes on that is more than just hearing these words. When the word of God is preached properly, it is as if God were speaking. We hear God's voice through preaching. And that's not to say that those other forms of communication are not good. They are. They all have a place. I mean, small groups in our classroom instruction, and at times when we get together, and other means that we use to communicate um, God's word to us are valuable. But there is something about preaching that is different. And it's why so many times people, you know, you will say so nice to me, you know, like, Pastor, that was just for me today. That's just what I needed to hear. That's not me. That's the Holy Spirit taking his word and applying it in your heart. But in order for me to have something to say, I need to make sure that I'm listening to God as I do the preparation during the week. Preaching. Preaching. Is a valuable part of what God uses to build us and build our church. Secondly, we also see in the Thessalonians an obedience to the word of God. In verse 14, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea. Earlier, Uh, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul would also say that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So they looked at Paul's example, they looked at Silas's example, and now they were looking at the churches in Judea and their example. Imitation is one of the ways that we learn, and we see that in children all the time. Children imitate their parents. You know, if dad's out mowing the lawn and you've got a little three-year-old or four-year-old, you know, he wants to mow the lawn. And he loves it if he can go around, you know, behind you or imitate that. Or if, uh, you know, a daughter who's young is seeing mom working in the kitchen or preparing a meal, she wants to be in there with her or doing things too. Kids imitate their parents. And when you see families, you see how uh, speech patterns... Are passed on or you see mannerisms that are passed on or values that are passed on children learn by imitation and that's how we grow in the Christian life too we grow by watching others who are believers that are an example or role model for us and so the believers in Thessalonica wanted to be like Jesus And they saw Jesus reflected in the life of Paul and Silas and in the churches in Judea. And they imitated them so well that Paul said, you guys became models to other believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In fact, several years later, when Paul is writing his second letter to the Corinthians, he will point to these believers as an example of faith and courage and generosity, even in the midst of their poverty and suffering. Wow. So, obedience. Why is obedience important? Well, there are many reasons. Again, as we put our faith into action. But one reason you may not have thought about is this that obedience opens up scripture more than anything else. Obedience opens up scripture more than anything else. Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Eat This Book. He was talking about our need to feed on the Word of God, to make that our habit, to read it and study it. And He gave this example. He said when he was 35, he bought a pair of running shoes and he began to enjoy the smooth rhythms of long distance running. Soon he was competing in 10k races every month or so and then he'd run a marathon once a year. By then, he said, I was subscribing and reading three different running magazines. I enjoyed, you know, learning and reading and seeing what others were doing. And then he said, then I pulled a muscle and I couldn't run for a couple of months. Those magazines were still all over the house, but I never opened one. The moment I resumed running, I started reading again. And he realized something about that. The same thing is true with our Christian life. If we are not active in serving if we're not active and growing or sharing our faith or doing things like that we're not going to be as hungry for the word of God but if we are being stretched if we're taking steps of faith if we are being obedient to what God has asked of us there's a hunger to know him better and a desire to get into the word more and more That's why Jesus said this in John 14, 21, that whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. That's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. I mean, it just, if you catch what he is saying there, he's saying whoever has my word, and puts that into practice in their life, what's he saying? He's saying he'll be loved by my father, I will love him, and I'm gonna show more of myself to him. Do you wanna grow in your relationship with God? Do you wanna get to know him better? Then put your faith into action and feed on God's word. And thirdly, we see in this passage that they were also willing to suffer for the Word of God and to suffer because of their relationship with Jesus. We see that in verses 14 to 16 when they became imitators of the churches in Judea which are in Christ Jesus, and they suffered from their own countrymen the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews. When he says they were suffering from their own countrymen, he's talking about the persecution that would come through the Gentiles and the Romans. And why were they being singled out? Why were they being persecuted? Well, they had come to believe that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. And that put them out of step with their fellow countrymen. It meant that they could no longer participate in the emperor cult, the worship of the emperor. It meant they could no longer participate in the idol worship that took place in their city. There were certain events that they would not go to. There are certain practices that they would not do and affirm. And they were not bad citizens, but they became a target for discrimination, for harassment, oppression, And persecution. And it would come in waves across the Roman Empire. In those first three centuries, there were 10 waves of persecution that would break out, sometimes very severe and sometimes less. But when you look at what happened to the church in those days and these early believers, I mean, some of them, at the very least, lost family and friends who would turn against them. Some would lose their job, some would have their businesses excluded. Some would even lose their lives for the gospel. And they learned how to persevere through suffering by watching the churches in Judea. Suffering can take many different forms in a believer's life. For some, there will be persecution. For others, it'll be suffering of a different sort. God may take uh, you through different trials in your life that are going to be hard for you. And your witness will be, how do you handle it? You know, what is your faith in God like? What kind of testimony do you share with others? I was interesting. I was reading a story about Stephen Colbert, and uh, most of you, we know him as a comedian on late night television. I don't know much about his faith. I know that he was brought up Catholic, but he shared an interesting story that's an example of learning from others how to deal with suffering. He said when he was 10 years old, his dad and his two older brothers were killed in a plane crash. And young Stephen was the only child still at home with his mother in the years immediately following And he was asked how he could experience such a loss and not become angry or bitter. And he explained it was his faith that brought him through. He said, I was raised in a Catholic tradition. That's my context for my existence. It's that I'm here to know God, love God, serve God, that we might be happy with each other in this world and with them in the next. That's what he was taught in the catechism. And he said, that makes a lot of sense to me. I got that from my mom and my dad and my siblings. I was left alone a lot after dad and the boys died, and it was just me and mom for a long time, he said. And by her example, I am not bitter. She was broken, yes, bitter, no. Colbert said that even in his mother's days of unremitting grief, she drew on her faith that the only way not to be swallowed by sorrow To, in fact, recognize that our sorrow is inseparable from our joy is always to understand our suffering and ourselves in light of eternity. He quoted J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote, What punishments of God are not gifts? And he said it would be ungrateful not to take everything with gratitude. It doesn't mean you want it. I can hold both of those ideas in my head, that it's okay to be sorrowful and yet at the same time thankful. You know, that's, there's something there. I mean, that's one of the mysteries of the scripture that tells us that in everything give thanks. In everything, even those bad things, even those things that are so difficult in our life, how do we do that? And again, it's not that we are thankful for them, but we see how God works in us and we see how he uses them, that he's an amazing God who causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. Well, I also want to comment on what Paul wrote here in verses 15 and 16. Because this is a passage that has sometimes been taken out of context and used to encourage anti-Semitism. It's a passage that sometimes uh, in past history people have used to call the Jews Christ killers and to do that with a broad brush across all Jewish people. And that is not what the scripture says, and that is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not anti-Semitic. He wrote as a Jew to other Jews, and his focus in this passage is not to paint a broad brush attitude toward all Jewish people. Remember, he would go to the synagogues wherever he went to preach the gospel. His focus is on those who stood in opposition to the gospel to keep it from spreading. And he talked about what they did, that they are in the same line as those who killed the Lord Jesus, who killed the prophets, and who also drove us out. And that attitude does displease God, and that attitude is hostile to all men, because they are trying to keep people from hearing the only way to salvation through Christ. Paul's desire for the Jewish people is expressed in Romans 10.1. He said, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He even said, I could wish myself accursed if it would mean salvation for them. That's how strongly he felt. And I just say that as a brief comment here because sometimes you may have this question asked, but there is no place for anti-Semitism among Christians. And then he goes on to say in this passage when he talked about these individuals that they heap up their sins to the limit, these who are opposing God, and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. They heap up their sins to the limit. It's a statement that there is a boundary, God has set. There is a limit to sin in our world. And there is a time when God says, that's it. And when he says that God's wrath has come upon them at last, he has spoken about God's wrath a couple different times now in Thessalonians. And what does he mean by that? Well, God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin. God hates sin and God will punish all sin. And in this case, it refers to the wrath of God that will be poured out on the earth when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on earth. There's that day coming. That will be a day of joy for the believer when he calls us home, but it will be a day of sorrow for those who have rejected Christ when God will come to punish sin. And when he says it has come upon them at last, it means it is already at work in our world. Paul speaks about wrath in the same way that Jesus speaks about his kingdom. When he said that the kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of God is broken into our world, it came with the coming of Jesus. And it came in power in his death and resurrection. And as the gospel is preached and more and more people come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that kingdom grows and will continue to grow until the end of the age. And Paul is saying that God's wrath is already at work, punishing sin setting boundaries to human evil, and there will come a day when God says, enough. And on that day when Christ returns, there will be a distinction between those who know Christ and those who do not. And those who know Christ have been rescued from his wrath. And those who reject Christ, God's wrath is already on them. Now is the time of salvation now is the time to turn to Christ and be saved so how do we show that our faith is real it is again by the way that we live and how are you doing in these three areas that Paul mentioned here the first was our acceptance of the word of God and you have an eager desire to know God and to know his word Do you accept his word as true and authoritative? Do you welcome it? Do you delight in it? Secondly, he said it's by our obedience to the word of God that we hear and obey, that we are doers of the word, not just hearers, that we listen, we take action, we put it into practice, and we are changed. And thirdly, by our suffering for the word of God, recognizing that when we stand with Jesus, We are taking a stand that is contrary to the way the world is going. And there are going to be people who don't understand that. There are going to be people who think that that's foolish or who may turn against you or who may leave you. But there is no greater reward than to walk with Jesus and to spend eternity with him in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, when I think about the response of the Thessalonians, it is amazing what you did there to people who heard the gospel for the very first time and who received it in such a remarkable way that their lives were changed and the church began to grow. Father, may our life too be marked by that kind of delight in you and in your word where we look forward to hearing it preached where we are eager to read it in our personal life and to study it, where we are quick to apply what you say as we walk with you each day. Lord, help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.